0: Welcome to Conversations in Clinical Trial Readiness, a series featuring life science executives who share their stories and insights related to clinical operations and clinical trial readiness. My name is Kelly Rich. I'm the EVP of Product and Clinical Research Solutions at Archimedics and your host of this series. Today, we're sitting down with Mary Costello, head of site and investigator network at Medable, the leading global platform for decentralized trials that provides a seamless experience which connects patients, sites, and clinical trial teams. Mary has 30 plus years of healthcare and clinical experience, including leadership roles at Covance, Fisher Clinical Services, eClinical Solutions, and Eligo Health Research, and is a founder of BioAustin. Today we'll be discussing, what does site management look like and how has it changed since the pandemic? The role of site staff and site management in decentralized trials, what extra steps clinical operations teams can take to support site staff in this new era of clinical trials, and the advantages of remote site training and much more. Welcome to our next conversation in clinical trial readiness. Our guest today is Mary Costello, the head of site and investigator network at Medable. Hi Mary, and welcome.
1: Hey Kelly, thanks for having me.
0: Would you be willing to introduce yourself to our audience and give them a little background to set the stage?
1: Sure. So I'm currently head of site investigator network at Medable. Medable is a company founded in Palo Alto about five years ago, dedicated to the startup and a platform around decentralized trials. We were started by a female researcher, Michelle Longmire, and we're a woman-owned, woman-founded company. And I'm kind of proud of that because it's the first time in my 30-year career, 30-plus year career, that I've worked for a woman-run company. And as a woman, that means a lot to me. I started in this industry actually in healthcare. I was a little bit of an evangelist role. I worked as HMOs and PPOs were starting to proliferate through the country And I worked in five states helping spread the word of a new way to run medicine. I migrated from there into software and then very quickly into clinical research, but I worked on the peri-approval side for Covance, which was really that time around about and after a product's approved. So it was a bridge kind of between healthcare and research. I moved back into full in clinical research with Covance and had the privilege of working for them number of years across a number of different divisions. From there, I joined a former colleague at Thermo Fisher Scientific. That was a fabulous job. It was clinical supplies. It was a market leader. I was in marketing. We had no marketing. I got to establish a function for a worldwide company that had 75% market share, and we had a lot of fun. The last um, kind of period of my career, I've had this itch to be in the startup mode. And so I have been with three different startups, one with eClinical Solutions, which is out of the Boston area, working on data management, software, and services for two and a half years. And here in Austin, I was with Eligo Health Research, and that was talk about bridging my start of my career and the end of my career. That was taking um, clinical research and bringing people, process, and technology into healthcare practices to enable them to do research. And clinical research and healthcare kind of the bridge of that to me is a bit like that saying two cultures separated by a common language. They share so much in common, but the worlds are so different. And even the way we describe them is different. So Medible seemed like a natural progression. I had some colleagues that had joined Medible. They were excited about the potential. And we really wanted to make sure that the investigative voice was in what we did at Medible. And so it seemed like I could apply everything i kind of built over over the course of my career into helping us with this next wave that's happening in our industry. So that's kind of a long way of telling you who I am and why I'm here. No,
0: that sounds absolutely great. I mean, your varied experience, uh, I could see how that'd be valuable to Medible, but it it will liven our conversation as well. So I I look forward (laughs) to it Uh, and certainly will continue to strive in my career to work for a women-owned business like yourself. It sounds like a great opportunity.
1: Well, it was interesting. Um, I was asked to reflect on this and it was the week that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And so Mm -hmm. I think we were reflecting as women what she'd done for women, things that I wasn't even aware of, why I could have a credit card or a mortgage in my name. And then you think about what does that leadership, how different is it? It might be subtle, it might be drastic, but I have experienced a difference. And I do think women managers often manage differently than men. And it's not that there aren't wonderful male uh, managers and I've had great role models and great experience, but it's just nice to see as a woman, Mm -hmm. this change coming.
0: Let's start today with talking about site management. What does excellence in site management look like and has it changed since the pandemic?
1: Great question, Kelly. I was really thinking about this. Um, Well, it's a topic that kind of on my mind as a whole, I think Excellence in management, not necessarily site management, just shares some common characteristics no matter what industry or what we're talking about. And so sites that do well probably have those foundational cornerstones. They're well-organized, well-defined roles, good team spirit, know what they're doing. I think that's the framework for success. I think what's changing with COVID, it gets back to that kind of who moved my cheese and the old... Um, business book from years ago, how well do you adapt to change? And this is sort of the Darwinian moment for all of us, right? Because many sites, I work with sites that have been doing this for 25, 30 years and have well-honed processes. So their entire world was thrown into disarray because of COVID. And some of their very strengths do come from the face-to-face contact. And as they talk to you, especially standalone research sites or healthcare sites, I think on... Um, as well, there's a personal connection between doctor or study coordinator or um, healthcare staff and the patient. It's not as easy to replicate over telemedicine. So there's strengths around that remote, not having to travel and safety for sure, but there is something that's lost. And so I think it's a matter of change management and getting them there. And what I have seen is an awareness in the sites that are doing the best. What are the gaps And kind of in real time doing a lot of adjustment and fine tuning? It may be small, fine tuning. It may be large. And I just think creativity. One of the sites in Rochester was having people come to the parking lot and basically checking them in almost like when you go to get your in and out burger, somebody comes with the iPad and checks you in and then, reduces contact. If they have to do vitals, they try to do that from the parking lot. And what they were trying to do is have that patient spend the minimum amount of time inside the site. That's not gonna be feasible probably in Rochester in December. But for the spring, I thought it was a great example of how that team rallied together. Sites that are gonna struggle are gonna be the ones that say, you know, we're used to doing things this way, And we're very uncomfortable changing. It does have a lot of cascading effects. You have to modify your SOPs. You have to modify your training. You have to modify your oversight. You still have that imperative about safety and what happens if you're audited. I do think there was a lot of leeway given for studies that continued. It was basically from FDA down, do the best you can with what you have for the time being. A lot of studies went on hold. But um, looking forward, I do think go back to those common characteristics, be open to change, share, discuss with other sites what they're doing, and technology plays a role in it, but it's not just the technology, it's very much about the humans willing to adapt.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, we hear a lot about being adaptable to change, but I love your point about needing awareness and creativity in order to make the adaptability really valuable, uh, certainly under under these uh, really difficult times. So I appreciate that. Um, your team at Medable focuses on decentralized trials, which fundamentally changes how clinical operations teams uh, might define a site. Uh, in fact, in a fully decentralized trial, maybe there aren't any physical sites. Can you speak to the role of site staff and site management in this type of trial?
1: Yeah, thanks. This is actually a question we get asked a lot. And I think that word decentralized trial or virtual trial or however it's described, I think decentralized is the preferred term by the FDA. Can sometimes send shockwaves because people imagine a central PI and no sites and just a bunch of patients on their iPhones. We haven't seen trials like this. We really feel that they're going to be hybrid trials and really what is the evolution that's happening is how can technology be harnessed to move elements of the trial, but really we don't want to lose the most important piece of this, which is the patient engagement and we don't want to forget why we're doing this. So I think traditionally patient engagement and any engagement, team engagement is Everybody understands it in a face-to-face setting. You know, that's why for years, even with those of us that have been in remote, there's several times a year we get together, we bond as a team, we get to know each other, and it does facilitate better working relationships. And I think we need to keep that, you know, keep that perspective. And so how do we replicate that? But how do we also drive convenience? And I think this is um, the opportunity that really exists out here for all of us. So for a um, standalone research site, they're often limited by the travel area, what's reasonable for someone to travel. And if they push the edges of that in a standard trial with maybe 10 to 15 visits, you might notice a taper off, life just gets in the way. Mm-hmm. Now imagine if you could just maybe have a single visit to start up or visit scattered throughout the study, but a lot of them done through telemedicine, a lot of vitals checked, study drug delivered directly to the patient's door. I think that's what we're seeing of movement towards. We've had to do it because of COVID. We see trials going back to this protocols as written, but what we also see are protocols now written to say, what if we have another reason we have to go virtual again? How would you do that? So it's almost the plan B built in there. I think if a site doesn't take the time to educate themselves on what this evolution is. It sounds very threatening because it sounds like there's an old saying, did you ever hear this? You might get Napstered. Kind of what happened to the music industry that didn't pay any attention to Napster. And next thing you go, all the value is driven out, but the value here, it's not just about in the music industry about the music and the listener. There's still the role of the site, which I think is the cornerstone And coming from a healthcare setting, that patient-physician relationship is everything, or the patient-study coordinator relationship is everything. We hear so much about how it's meaningful to participate in studies to come in. And it's more than the protocol. They get encouraged. Somebody's caring. Somebody's checking in. They get a lot of care intending. We don't want that to go away. As a matter of fact, we want to figure out how can we add more of that? And maybe we can if you're not having to schedule, get somebody to drive you, take transportation, wait in a waiting room. But you can really connect. And so that's the way we see trials going. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense.
0: Are you finding that the site staff are on board with all of these changes? Um, and if you are, you know, which, which aspects in particular?
1: Um, you know, I don't know if the site staff are on board in anything. I mean, they've had a lot thrown at them. in the last 20 years, the sites in general. I think all site staff are very committed. Nobody goes into this because it is the most lucrative um, career, but it's because they like connection and helping others. Same reason I think patients go into a clinical trial but overwhelmingly they do it because they want to help advance science and help others beyond them. And I think there's a sense of mission in the staff too. But what happens I have seen over the years is technology often just gets pushed down on the clinical staff and they are constantly taking more and more on protocols are more complex. Revenues remain flat. They're dealing with a lot. I think they are concerned about what does the future hold? So I think in medable what we've seen We think the site's the linchpin. Let's make sure that what we're developing involves them. We've built a network of relationships. So as we develop products, we start with the site. I think that all this movement to patient centricity somehow has also left the site out, at least in the discussion. You don't have a patient without a physician, without a PI at this point in time. The relationship is not just sponsor and patient in a pre-approval setting. There's always that site in there. So I think the opportunity today is really to build out the site involvement, build technology that welcomes them. And so I think they love to be asked. Number one, I would say, I haven't had a site yet that says we're not going to do decentralized trials. It's more, they say, teach me. I'm you know, willing to learn. Could you do a Zoom call for my staff? And so I think... For CROs, for sponsors, for companies company like ours, let's all think about how we can help the site instead of just how we can give them the technology.
0: So Mary, are you finding that the site staff are on board with these changes and in which aspects in particular, if they
1: are? Thanks for the question. I think the site staff are very committed to what they do. And as a result, I think they're very motivated to try to make a success of any study for their patients and for their businesses. However, you know, looking back and perhaps in the mirror at all of us involved in research over the past 10, 20 years, we have to ask ourselves if we've done as much to support the staff as we should. And an example may be the protocols are becoming increasingly complex. I think Tufts had something that you know, 10 years ago, it was 35 procedures and now over 100 procedures per protocol. It's a site that has to carry them out. Also, as we've added more technology, we are adding more and more technology into trials. It just gets pushed down to the site. So all the patient centricity in the talk seems to disenfranchise the site a bit. I think they know a change is coming. I think they want more instruction on how to prepare for it. We do think there are some steps that we should take. And if you want me to go into those, I can. Um, first, of, first and foremost, I think an assessment of the sites prior to putting them into any study that's gonna involve using technology differently than they may have used it in the past is a good idea. Example of that might be, is there someone on site that is, has responsibility kind of for all things IT? who can provide support, who can be a liaison to training, who could check devices, anything like on that level. Do they have devices? Are they using tablets? Do they allow their phones to be used? You know, a lot of these trials are bring your own device and other, st- other um, sites will sometimes actually prohibit the use of personal phones just as their SOP. They don't allow the staff to bring them in. So, you know, these are some practical things we have to bridge. I also think then understanding what experience they've had or what other physical challenges might exist before you just say, this is how the trials is going to be run and find it out after the study has been initiated. Example of that might be where are they physically located? Are they next to a radiology department in a hospital setting? Because we found that's a problem. We found basement settings can be a problem with reliable signal and uploading. So I think starting with an assessment makes sense. And then helping um, develop training and support that's suited to the to the site and the staff. And I found that the site is very open to this and willing to make adjustments, but they don't know what questions they should be asked.
0: Yeah, great points. And really, uh, you touched on it, and you started to talk about training, which I think is you know great. And where I was going to go next. So you know, previously, site managers, CRAs, other staff, they've really relied heavily on that in person activities to train each other. Um, on, on a new program. And can you speak to the format you're seeing remote training take place and comment on its effectiveness at this point?
1: Well, you know, I think it's it goes even upstream. I think we have to think about training more broadly. So we have lots of function and feature training that can be done and delivered remotely. And there's some real benefits to that. I think the biggest benefit to that from the in-person, although I know a lot of people miss, again, the human connection and just the chance to network and socialize of the training of old, but is the convenience factor. If someone can do the training on their own time and around their own schedule, rather than logging in at a set time, that offers its own um, benefit. But I think we miss the point if we don't start with change management training. There's some behavioral science to all of this. There is understanding how to interact or what to watch for with the parent patients. So let's say we're shifting informed consents to e-consents. How do you still demonstrate oversight? How do you still know that the patient doesn't have questions they're not asking? How do you use a televisit maybe coupled with e-consent to look at body language and how to help them? I think it's applying what they're already doing, but it's taking it one step back. And I think the PI still has that responsibility for oversight. We should not shortchange that and we should think about helping them with what their objective is rather than saying, here's how the app works or here's how you're going to log in and exchange information this way. So I think the industry has an opportunity to say, what are the elements of networking and how do we bring them into our training so that people still feel connected to the community? That Mm -hmm. might start with, don't just launch into your remote training when you do it. But if you're having a whole scale group on there, Take the time for everyone to introduce each other. It may lengthen the training, but it may personalize the training. Secondly, I think we need to think from the site's perspective and make sure that we're training them and using to use the technology to its maximum benefit. And that starts with behavioral change. How can yeah, we share what we learn. Yep.
0: Uh, yeah, I think if you can, like you said, many of your points are just around helping the sites do a good job and, and helping it be easier on them, which, you know, benefits all of us in, in the long run. So as you've tried some of these, what what advantages have you uncovered around remote site training?
1: So I think around, well, remote in general, I would say for from a site perspective, a couple. So I'm going to expand beyond training. I would say, one, the catchment area. Everyone is looking, a business is looking to grow. So a site research can be a business as well. It could be a a revenue stream within there. Now that we've not just limited people to drivable distance. So I think that is a very positive for the sites and something we should think about. I think the advantages as well are convenience of time for the patient. And I think that makes... um, a better, it can raise the chance that they're going to complete the study and complete all their visits, which is the goal. In the end, patients that drop out cannot be counted. So sites have their targets, sponsors have their targets. What can we do to raise that likelihood? So I think that's a benefit as well. I think the benefit is um, of tools and patient satisfaction are high. We are doing a series of studies right now. And the patient satisfaction scores across the board are 99 and higher. We've never seen that with a trial. So I think patients are finding the experience better. And that means they're more likely to, you know, tell a friend and neighbor about it. We need to find ways to increase clinical trial participation as a whole in the industry. So I think that's some of what we can get out of the new world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's really good news. I mean, certainly we all hear about enrollment challenges, enrollment delays, um, and the need to drive participation. So the fact that you're hearing, you know, getting some of those good positives that might actually increase enrollment is really really good news for all of us, I think. So on the topic of training and decentralized trials, are there signals you can look for to know that a clinical trial team, uh, be it a global team or a local team, is ready to take on a decentralized trial?
1: And when you say clinical trial team, do you mean at the site level or at the CRO or sponsor level?
0: I think that it could be either, right? Like, as you know, there are new uh, CRO teams who maybe haven't done this before. What are the signs and signals that they're likely to be uh, successful? Similarly with the sites, those would be great to hear your thoughts on.
1: So I think the CRO sponsor question is a little more difficult because I think it actually probably has to start with the protocol. Does the protocol lend itself to that kind of remote surveillance and engagement. And I think that's a really a case by case. But again, we're not talking about a black or white situation here. There's a lot of shades of gray. Mm -hmm. And I do think maybe a question for anyone designing a protocol is where are we likely to run into enrollment challenges and participation challenges? And would introducing some level of decentralization help convenience for the patient, would it allow the site to do, perhaps they're going to shift some of their visits away to having those assessments done remotely? And does that give them more time to spend on the patients in the study who need more clinical time? And so it's maybe a reshifting of their time and thinking about it. But I think it starts there. We're, the pharma industry as a whole has never been known as one that likes to change at lightning speed. So um, I think I did a study years ago to say, you know, what was the receptivity to change and pharma was next to last. And the very last was the generics industry. (laughs) So, you know, we're not even fast followers. We're certainly not the early adopters, not fast followers, but, you know, we play it safe because we are dealing with safety. And I think safety kind of dictates the way we think about our world as a whole. That's not to say they're not huge numbers of early adopters and change agents that exist in our industry. We wouldn't be here today, but change has to take place on a global scale, and it's like turning the proverbial aircraft carrier. There's a lot of moving parts. And in the end, we're most comfortable with what we feel the regulators will accept. Let's start, though, with protocols and thinking about that, flipping it from the perspective of a patient and say, how do we introduce convenience, and perhaps it is an element of safety. Is there more frequent or more frequent checks in possible if we move this to some online rather than waiting for a scheduled visit? Do we have safety concerns? Is it a rare patient population that we should bring the trial to the patient rather than the patient to the trial? Are we not going to be, you know, they, I have seen some, um, statistics talking about the distance most patients live, from a study site, two to two and a half hours. We underrepresent people in diverse communities, underrepresent people in rural settings. Could we help our trials? So, I think looking at all those challenges and then saying, let's superimpose technology and how do we think about it? So, that's one way to prepare for that change. I do think there's training that needs to happen for CRAs. So, if you're doing your oversight and doing your audit, how do we help? coach the sites to start up, so get back to that behavioral change. But even within the community for the CRAs, how are you going to change the way in which you interact with your sites if you're doing all these audits remotely or if you're auditing remote behavior? So there's a lot of cascading effects that need to be thought of. I do think taking the time to invest in behavioral change management training is really an important element and a missed opportunity. And we're moving too fast sometimes to be thoughtful. That's the way this industry seems to go, that there's slow to change. But when it comes to a trial, there can be a mad rush to hurry up and get started to get to first patient in. And then there's a lot of corrective action on the back end. So I know when I was at Covance, it was a big part of the way they thought is about how do we front load what we think needs to go right and spend the time on that rather than just fix it on the back end.
0: Yeah, wonderful points in there. I've certainly throughout my career tried to focus on prevention versus reaction, but have found that that isn't a common theme in our industry a lot of times. And what I really heard you say was we've, we really thoughtful questions to ask of your protocol. And so, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're really saying is you, you can't really back into a decentralized trial. You need to plan a decentralized trial starting with your protocol.
1: Well, I think COVID showed us we can have pushed. We're capable of a lot. And we did back in to some elements of decentralization, and we did this mid-flight. We were painting that plane as we were flying it. But a well-executed trial, like any whether it's decentralized or not, has really taken into, you know, thought upfront what would be the best way to do this, and how do we build that preventative mindset instead of remediation? And you know, the stakes are really high right now. It's very similar to kind of what biologics did versus small molecules. There used to be a thought was we'll just make a lot of drug and we'll just supply it to pennies. But when you have a biologic, that's a thousand, two thousand $2,000 a dose, you can't do that. So you have to have a really thought out distribution plan. I think it's the same plans here. If we're going to provision devices, um, I'll give you an example that I actually have heard from a mid COVID study. Um, they're falling short on the diversity targets and they're not reaching as well into some of the communities of color. A lot of the participants from the communities of color did not have um, an area that they could download results. They need to do it daily through some kind of internet exchange and upload and they don't have Wi-Fi. So rather than provisioning devices, which seems not that big a cost, the expectation was to send the participants to the library daily, in a pandemic, to upload their study results. And what do you think was the, you know, result? People were dropping out of the study. Absolutely, yeah. So I, I kind of think it's that John Wooten quote, when, if you don't have time to do it right, when are we going to have time to do it over? So I think when you have targets in a trial, and you have been here before, we know these are challenges, perhaps what everyone needs to go in and recommend is the best path forward is one that supports the patient in all dimensions and creates that equality. And so how do we do it? So in the middle of a trial, telling someone to go to a library every day, I don't think was a good workaround and it ended up costing yeah. the sponsor.
0: Yeah, it definitely sounds like, you know, if you're, if you have your blinders on and you're, you know, too focused on your outcomes and your data and you forget to think about uh, the patients and what you're really asking and expecting, um, yeah, very short-sighted, right? We're not going to move move the ball forward with that. So appreciate that a lot. Um, you've had a really interesting career path. I know we touched on it at the beginning with experiences uh, as the VP of clinical development and patient advocacy, the head of the site and investigator network now. But previously, you were a VP of global marketing. Um, can you tell us what inspired you to make uh, the career change and move to overseeing sites and
1: clinical development instead? Well... I'm a bit of a sucker for a challenge. And (laughs) (laughs) so I do this a bit to myself, but I do think marketing and marketing was something I evolved to. I really started more on the operations and commercial side and then got pulled into a marketing role. But marketing, I'm not a marketing tactician. I mean, I have opinions and ideas and experience, but I'm more of a strategist. And a strategist is, I think, more of a business role. There's an old definition that Sales is if sales' job is to move product, marketing's job is to make sure product can move. And so I think those two come together in what I'm doing now. You know, Medible's job is not just to pump out technology, but it's also to make sure that the technology we develop is fit for purpose. And so I do draw a lot on the techniques I learned in my years in marketing. And a lot of it starts with ask your stakeholders, ask your end users, ask your customers. And so my job now, first and foremost, is to make sure that the site itself is that stakeholder. I think then it also, you know, patient recruitment kind of bleeds into social media, into campaigns, into communication and advertising. And these are all common functions and areas that marketing tends to touch, Mm -hmm. And then I personally, I did have a lot of time to participate on strategies, particularly at at CoVance. And CoVance was a big, um, really, really believed in strategy as a way to approach all their trials. And they would bring a diverse community of stakeholders around to plan. And so people had a perspective. As we were forming feasibility teams, you would, as a marketer, want to be close to know what that goal of that new function was. This was I've been around a long time. We didn't used to always do (laughs) feasibility trials. But as we would roll that out as a formal function, you would stay close. You would participate. When I was at Thermo Fisher, very close to many of our customers, spent a lot of time working with them, having them developed our new launches. And so it became kind of a natural extension. And it was when I was at at Elago. They approached me to come into this role around patient advocacy and clinic development. And for me, it was really the coming full circle from starting in the field, working with physicians and hospital groups to now come back in that setting, but bringing with me 25 years of clinical research experience in all the various functions and forms was a great preparation. And then it's kind of what makes me passionate is to see what we do succeed. I mean, we're all in this to have an end result and really it happens then with future prescribers, future patients, the role of the patient community and advocates in that community, they're wonderful partners. And I personally feel those underrepresented communities, we owe a real, you look at COVID disproportionately hitting certain communities. We really have to be more thoughtful And make sure that our trials look like our country and like the people that are suffering. So those are kind of things that make me feel good about what I do and make me passionate and make me, you know, kind of get up in the morning with the spring in my step. And I've been fortunate to have a chance to, you know, undertake a lot of those different roles.
0: Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I tell people all the time it's, you know, if you really think about the outcomes that we're driving for, it's, it's not hard to get motivated in the morning. Um, but I thought y- your reminder for everyone, for the audience is so valuable. Um, ask rather than tell, right. We, we don't probably do enough asking and the value of that in prevention and preparing is, is great. So I just wanted to pull that out. Cause I think ask rather than tell was really a key piece of, of your answer there. So, um, Are there any additional lessons learned from the world of marketing that you think can help clinical operations uh, roles frame how they approach site management?
1: Yeah, I think if you don't have, many companies do have a good council of sites. But I also think there's a danger for any of us. You know, it's when you first come to a company, you feel like you have your most ideas because your perspective is the freshest and you get institutionalized. We all start to move into that group, think into that culture it's an opportunity, you know, that's that good side, bad side. As you learn more, you become more valuable, but you also feel like, oh, you know, remember when I started and I had all these ideas. So I think it's important to rotate those, that site um, council and make sure you're listening to new sites I think uh, uh, the policy of customer satisfaction surveys to sites and not trying to, sometimes our thinking can get really reductive and people, there is a perception that we're an over-surveyed culture, especially in the US that we survey for everything, you know, from your car repair to your oil change to your online grocery shopping experience and that people just don't wanna participate anymore. But I think you can take some good practices. And so some of it is that you shouldn't put people into a survey and not ask them for what they think, because you might not have asked them the question they wanted to answer. So it's a really important process in whether you have a site counselor or whether you're going to send an online survey out, make sure you leave space and mean it to ask them about the time. I think, though, the other thing to walk the walk, there's one thing worse than never asking someone for their opinion is asking it and never doing anything about it. So I think companies need, need, need to make that commitment that when they ask for open feedback and see it as a gift and an opportunity to improve, that they commit to doing something. You can't do everything, but you might pick on the themes or the things that will have the most impact. And so I think those are some lessons that we can think about. Now, as we wanna apply them back to decentralized trials, I think it's particularly important because these are new experiences and both sides are learning. Companies like mine will learn more about implementation and be able to give that both to our sites and to our patients, but also back to the study sponsors that hire us. So we need to be open and see implementation is a very dynamic process that's ever evolving. But I think also that pre-qualification and extra level of support, we should remember sites particularly are needing support in this time. And they're going to get there because they've made a business out of being very, Um, scrupulous and attention to detail, but no one does well when they're just thrown in the end of the pool and expected to figure out how to swim.
0: Absolutely. Um, In general, I was going to ask you since you've obviously had a lot of experience collecting Mm -hmm. this survey information, do you have any sort of formal steps or recommendations for people who are still struggling with how to actually implement or follow up on, on the data that they're collecting?
1: Well, there's a million ways to do that. And from whole-scale systems that'll cost lots of money, but have a lot of great functionality to almost freeware with the survey monkeys of the world. But I think it starts with the mindset. And there are people who are better at designing surveys and don't underestimate that. One of the, um, if you're gonna go to the trouble to ask a site or stakeholder, not only ask them opinion, but be thoughtful. Are the questions that you're asking something that you can act upon? So it's not really the physical way that you distribute it because I think there's a lot of choices, but it's the thought that went in ahead of time. What are you going to do with that information? Are you going to be able to get your organization to make a commitment to change? And are you asking a broad enough audience? In our global industry, there are some cultural differences too in surveys and um, Europeans are harder graded than Americans And so you need to be able to represent a large enough sample that neither side is skewing you, Mm -hmm. that you're not um, picking up on a problem. I think you need to think about timing. Clinical trials go on a long time. Are you gonna wait two years to find out how you did it? And then cascade that through the organization because I think for organizations to be most effective, everyone has to hear the feedback, not just marketing or not just operations, but everybody should come together. Yeah. Great points.
0: Uh, Mary, you've been wonderful. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Um, Where can people find out more about Medible?
1: Well, we could get, you could go to Medible.com. We'd love to have you come by and visit. Um, For anyone on the site side that would like to hear more of what we're doing about sites personally, they're welcome to email me or connect with me on LinkedIn. You know, I'm passionate about this and I would love to just chat and I'd love to hear. So back to that bi-directional information exchange, really would love to hear ideas, thoughts, and um, learn from that. And thank you all for contacting us and well, happy to chat anytime. Thanks, Mary.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Conversations in Clinical Trial Readiness. If you're interested in learning more about our team, head to our website, archimedics.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you like what you've just heard, please share with a friend and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thanks for joining us.